Hello and welcome to Nightlight. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus is confronted by an unusual partnership. The Sadducees and the Pharisees hated each other. Uh, basically, from a political point of view, you have the Sadducees representing what would be, in our vernacular, the the left or the uh, the liberal, the anti-supernatural humanist element of uh, of the culture, with the Pharisees representing the fundamentalist, supernaturalist, Bible-believing quote side. How could these two groups find common ground with each other when they were historically enemies? Uh, well, because Jesus was there. And where Jesus is, uh, these two groups find common ground, and the common ground is to resist him. Now, please understand what I mean by that. I'm not saying that everybody who's Bible-believing and fundamental in their faith or Pharisees who resist Jesus. That's not my point. Certainly there are godly people. There's got, there are godly, godly concerns among liberals. Uh, when liberals are truly concerned for the poor, truly concerned for justice, truly concerned for uh, right against evil, then they're not, they're not acting as, quote, liberals. They're just being human and godly in that, that aspect of, of their belief. And behavior. But what we have here are the spiritual forces that control these two groups manifesting their hatred for the Son of God. The spirit of Antichrist can operate through either Sadducee or Pharisee. The spirit of Antichrist can operate through either the left or the right. The spirit of Antichrist can operate through uh, those who claim to believe the Bible as well as those who treat the word of God with disdain. And what are they asking for? They're asking for Jesus to show them a sign. Later on in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, the Jews seek for a sign and the Greeks want wisdom. Uh, then he goes on to say it's through the foolishness, quote unquote, of preaching that we come to know Christ, and uh, he implies there that, 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 that he's, of course, using the phrase foolishness tongue-in-cheek. What, what the world calls foolishness uh, is the mercy and grace of God being manifested. Jesus responds to the Pharisees and Sadducees by saying, you know, you, you guys can look at the sky and easily foretell what the weather's going to do. Why is it that you can't see the signs of the times? And I want to talk for the time that we have together today about some of the signs of the times, and then I want to talk about several present concerns. I, I hope you'll uh, forgive me if I don't follow an exact uh, pattern of, uh, of uh, systematic teaching today. I just want to talk to you out of my heart concerning some of these things. And perhaps by the end of it, it'll coalesce into a message that makes sense to you. I hope it will. But the signs of the times today uh, are, are no different than they've been in the ancient times. Uh, one, of the, one of the tricks of the powers of darkness to seduce and dupe our generation is to, to sell to us the idea that somehow the passing of time and the changes on a calendar constitute some vast separation between how God dealt with people in ancient days and how God deals with people today. So you hear this, this foolish statement, you hear it all the time, uh, in the 20th century, we don't believe so-and-so and so-and-so. Or now, in the 21st century, no one believes so-and-so and so-and-so. And then whatever it is that they are saying we don't believe is not based on the empirical evidence they so exalt and glorify. But it's based on an assumption of the concept of progress. 
Now, we all do it because it's so much part of our culture that we just naturally fall into the tendency to pick up on that idea of progress. The idea of progress is actually based on a Darwinian theory of, of uh, existence, that everything is getting better. Well, everything is not getting better. Uh, it, it, it's not progress that, that we have tools that are better than other tools. It, it's an improvement, but it doesn't necessarily translate into progression towards perfection. Uh, I've told this before as an example, but I have a friend who's an excellent businessman. He's a godly man. He's a great guy. He's got a great sense of humor, and he's always happy, and he's always up. And a few years ago, I called him for some business purpose, and he sounded really down. And I said, Billy, what's the matter with you? And he said, well, he said, I'm just uh, pretty frustrated. He said, we've uh, got all this new equipment in our office now that my boss has set in. It's all supposed to be time-saving stuff, and it's all supposed to improve our business, and it's supposed to be progress. And he said, I used to be able to get out of here by 5 o'clock in the afternoon, but now with all this new stuff, it has doubled my workload, and I rarely get home to my wife and children before 7 or 7.30 in the evening. And he said, I'm pretty discouraged by it. Now, uh, I'm not anti-machines. Uh, I'm not anti-improvement. Uh, but I certainly resist the demonic lie that says we are progressing toward perfection. Uh, this idea that uh, says whatever new thing is happening is good because it's new. And it's good because new means progress is insanity. One of the things that I want to delve into a bit more later on in our time together is the fact that in the name of progress, Western uh, businesses have infiltrated third world countries, taken over land uh, while robbing the people, stripping the land of its, of its uh, nutrients and its ability to, uh, to, to provide for the, the, the natives all in the name of uh, obtaining what is progress in the name of Western uh, economic uh, activity. This is one of the reasons why we're under God's judgment economically, because of the way we uh, rape and pillage and misuse other nations for our own benefit and leave them impoverished in the process. But that's a larger subject we will probably not be able to cover adequately here today. Now, uh, I want to talk about the signs of the times. Signs are not meant to be complete descriptions of reality, are they? When you are driving down the road and you're looking for a sign that points you toward Dallas, you don't expect to see a map of Dallas with detailed information about every street in the city. You simply look for a sign that says Dallas. When I talk about the signs of the times, uh, I am talking about signposts that point toward the direction that we're headed. And I want to mention a few of them. Again, you don't have to take them seriously. Uh, I just ask you to pray about them. I ask you to take them before the Lord. But uh, at the beginning of this administration, it is to me very noteworthy that uh, the day that President Obama was um, set into office, an unprecedented event occurred. It was mentioned in the news, but I understand why they wouldn't make a big deal out of it. And uh, you remember, possibly, when he took his oath of office, he, uh, the oath was scrambled in the middle of, of laying his hand on the Word of God and making the oath... Somehow or other, I, and I don't know that there was anybody to blame, uh, the Chief Justice got off track, Obama got off track, but by the end of the swearing-in ceremony, uh, it was kind of an embarrassing muddle. So much so 
that the next day Obama retook the oath. But when he retook it the second time, there was no Bible. There was no representation of the authority of God in the oath-taking. I'm not suggesting there was some conspiratorial, willful uh, move on Obama's part to make sure that the Word of God was taken out of the picture, although I would have reason to possibly assume that based on what he did yesterday at Georgetown uh, University, which is a Catholic university. When he spoke, he uh, directed the uh, Georgetown hosts to cover up all symbols of Christianity in the room where he's speaking. So uh, there's a black shroud placed over the symbol of the name of Jesus so that Obama can speak. Uh, now, on a, on a side note, for those of us who may want to get angry at that, Georgetown University should have put a black shroud over the name of Jesus a long time before Obama showed up because uh, the activities of this so-called Catholic University has been so reprehensible, uh, so perverse, so demonic in its presentations to its students uh, that Obama's action was kind of anticlimactic. But here again, uh, I'm not saying that the swearing-in ceremony was Obama willfully saying, let's mess it up so we can get the Bible out of the picture. I don't think Obama did it. I don't think Chief Justice Roberts did it. I think God did it. I think this was the very beginning of God saying to America, I am taking you at your word. I am withdrawing my presence from your government operations. My prevenient grace, which is held back in uh, significant uh, progress towards evil, is going to be removed, and I'm going to give you your fast track towards self-destruction. And so uh, that was the beginning of what has been, uh, in my opinion, an increased awareness of signs pointing toward the direction we're headed. Now, I want to shift gears here just for a moment and talk a, a little bit more about the the fact that I think it's impossible to separate spirituality from politics. Um, I don't think it's possible to be a Christian and not be politically involved. And I'm not saying you, you can't believe the gospel and die and go to heaven. But to obey the word of God, you can't possibly obey the Word of God, and not engage yourself in the policy-making and policy fulfillments of the nation you live in. Tell me how it's possible to be a, an obedient disciple of Jesus Christ and not be involved in the issue of uh, the needs of the poor. Well, sadly, most of the church has managed to do that now for generations, but uh, you can't, you're not obeying. I mean, you you can be Christians, and I'm not making a judgment of whether you're saved or not. Only God knows that. But but to be an obedient follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you're going to be involved in caring for the poor. That gets you involved in public policy. That gets you involved in uh, government decision-making. I don't mean it gets you involved on the level that the church controls the government, Certainly, we don't want the church controlling the government, nor do we want the government controlling the church. But what we do expect, if we're believers, is that we be uh, uh, given a place to act on behalf of those issues that deal with justice and injustice. And the sad fact is, if the Church of Jesus Christ had been involved, as we should have been all along, in the subjects of justice and injustice, care for the poor, ministry to uh, those in prison, ministry to their families, ministry to uh, uh, 
the woman who has had an abortion, as well as standing against the evil of abortion itself. Uh, if we were focusing our energies and attention on meeting the needs of the world in the name of Jesus, which doesn't just mean getting them, quote, saved, but, but ministering to their physical and uh, emotional and social needs. If we had not had a, a schizophrenic break back in the end of the ni- uh, 1900s, uh, when fundamentalism went off in one direction and liberalism went off in another direction and the church stopped caring for the poor because that's, that smacked of social gospelism, uh, we wouldn't be facing some of the messes that we're facing today. Now, God is shaking all of this in order to, among other things, reawaken his people to our responsibility to be involved in the, the difficulties and demands and needs of our generation. And uh, a, lot of our, a lot of our funding uh, is going to be pointed back to that direction uh, if, if we are listening to God, if we're obeying the Lord. I, I, I know that people in this audience give sacrificially anywhere where there is a true need and they can trust that the money will go for what it's supposed to go for. And I believe that's probably true of many churches, but sadly, because we have become apolitical, in other words, we don't want to get involved in politics, we don't want to get involved in the, whether it's national politics or local politics or church politics, we don't want to get involved in all that yeah, yeah that breaks out in so we just give our money and pray that the people who are handling it will keep their word and do what they're supposed to do with it. Uh, I think that most Christian people are truly giving people. I think uh, if they're Christians, they should be. But I think uh, we've given up in some circles on trying to make sure the money goes where it's supposed to go. And we just give and hope the Lord will keep a, an account of the fact that we gave the best we could. And we just pray it'll go where it's supposed to go. As a result... A lot of money goes for local silliness. Uh, I can't imagine anything more ridiculous than a local middle-class church uh, building a gymnasium so its middle-class white families can have another place to play. Uh, it's beyond my imagination what excuse some church has for building a gymnasium when I guarantee you within two, three, four blocks of that church in any direction, there'll be families who can't afford to buy their children's shoes or to pay the light bill. Uh, it is no wonder that the church in America has no prophetic authority. So it's easy for the Sadducee element of our culture to say to the church, well, why don't you just keep your mouth shut and go over there in the corner and mind your own business and, uh, and let us take care of the, <clears throat> you know, the, the, the real issues of life. And you go over there and talk about heaven and the other world. Uh, you live in another world anyway, so just go over there in the corner and talk about your other world. Whereas Jesus obviously expected us to occupy till he comes back. That, that is to, to dwell in the land and to uh, be salt and light in the midst of rot and darkness, which we have not done. Now, everybody's motivated. All of a sudden, we've got people all over the country who are highly motivated and we've got these tea parties and we're gathered. I, I was at one. I was glad to be there. The man that led the tea party near me uh, didn't talk about politics. In front of an audience of about 100 people, he talked about our need for repentance. And I was grateful for that. Very grateful for that. I stood there with tears in my eyes at the thought that, thank God, you know, this is not about uh, mere political action, but it's gone to the root of the problem. But the tea parties across the country are a mixture. I'm not saying they're bad at all. 
But I'm not saying they're good either. Only God knows. But the mixture is this. Many people are activated because they are upset over the economic uh, uh, insanity, uh, over the economic uh, insanity of of, uh, the last several weeks, months. And when you start touching people's pocketbooks, all of a sudden they get highly motivated. We never were that motivated when children were being killed at first. Uh, We never were that motivated when American companies were going in and uh, misusing and and uh, raping other nations economically. We've not spoken out about injustice uh, on other issues, but all of a sudden we're very concerned about the protection of our property. I guess that's human nature, but my concern is this. What does God see when he looks at the tea parties? What does God think when he observes the uh, gathering of people who are all of a sudden motivated when nothing motivated them before. And when the Tea Parties gather, are they anything like what I was privileged to, to see and be a part of? Was there, was there talk about repentance? Was there talk about the, the responsibility of the nation before God? Was there talk about the responsibility of the church to the nation and the nation's responsibility to God? Or was it mostly just a a right-wing reaction to left-wing politics? Because we are at a place now in our existence as a nation where it's no longer left and right. Of course, American politics never was primarily left and right. Those of you British and European folks in our audience you think much more in terms of left and versus right than we do. Left and right didn't infiltrate our system uh, until the 1960s. We never even used that term. And truly, if you go back to the 1950s and 60s, uh, the Democratic Party and the Republican Party differed in principles of uh, operation of government, but the foundation stones were the same. Uh, We didn't have, uh, on the Democratic side, an anti-family, anti-God, anti-heterosexual family principles or uh, uh, Marxist ideologies uh, at the foundation of our economic principles. Uh, There was just opposing views on, on how it should be implemented. But now in America, uh, we definitely have a left and a right which is one of the polemics that has to be imposed into a nation's thinking before you can conquer it, divide and conquer. And so we, we now are becoming, we've become, we're two countries. We are split almost 50-50, which is why our political uh, activities now are uh, fights for control rather than uh, activities of democracy based on law and uh, uh, truth of a republic. Uh, If we can be moved from a republic to a democracy, and then we can get the the people of the democracy seduced by false concepts of freedom so that they begin to vote for themselves uh, support from the government, then the end is in sight, and that we're there now. So, It's not possible to be God's people and not be politically active, but at the same time, it's not possible to be God's people and let our political activity come from the left or the right. We are to be God's people in the midst of the political activity because the policy making has to do with how justice and injustice gains uh, the the platform in in the nation. So, consequently, to be God's people obediently operating in the nation that we live in, we've got to care about policies that deal with people. You know, the word economy, for instance, comes from the Greek root oikos, which is the word for household. So when you're talking about the economy, you're not just talking about money and politics, quote-unquote. You're talking about people and families and food, and clothing, and shelter, and care, and medical help, 
and all that goes with that. So when we talk about the economy, you cannot, as a Christian, say, well, the economy doesn't matter. That's just a, a non-issue. I, I, I'm, a, I'm more concerned with heaven. More concerned with heaven. What has heaven got to do with any of this if heaven is defined as some smoky, gaseous other world that has no manifest presence in this one? Jesus never talked about heaven in that way. Most of the church's preoccupation with heaven is not a preoccupation with the king of heaven or the holiness of heaven or the presence of God or even our eternal future. It, it, it smacks of a sentimental, romanticist escapism that seeks to avoid fulfilling the Great Commission and avoid fulfilling the responsibilities that Jesus gave us for this present world. Uh, I remember as a boy being deeply moved at times by songs that uh, spoke of heaven. and the, I noticed elderly people in the congregation as, when I was a boy, uh, how their eyes would get misted over uh, over the subject of heaven, especially in singing certain songs. And I'm old enough now to understand many of them, their loved ones were already there. Uh, their longing for heaven was partly due to the fact that life for them on this earth was, was running out. I'm not making fun of that. I'm not making light of that. I'm not criticizing that. That's a very human thing, and God has compassion on it. Well, what I'm talking about is a concept of heaven that says, let the world go to hell. We're going to fly through a hole in the sky any minute and, and, and just let it all go down the tube because it's all of the devil anyway, and uh, we're righteous and they're not. We're God's people and they're not. So who cares what happens to them? Same thing with uh, you know, the concerns for ecology. Uh, people will ask me what my opinion is of, of ecology. Well, what do you mean what my opinion is? We're supposed to be stewards of the earth. We're supposed to be caring for the earth. Because the church has, once again, irresponsibly negated uh, its, its uh, ability to steward the planet properly. That whole concept has been taken over by left-wing, radical even communist uh, influences. I mean, have you wondered where the Communist Party is? Do you think they just moved to the dark side of the moon when communism collapsed? Do you think that whole movement that we called communism just vanished off the earth after 1989 when the wall came down? <laughs> no, Gorbachev moved to America to help uh, supply Marxist principles in the education system. And the majority of the Communist Party membership went into the Green Peace Movement. So that the, the Green Movement is primarily a red movement, uh, not a green one. Now, on the other hand, does that mean that because the Sadducees have taken over the ecology movement that the Pharisees have no responsibility to care for the environment? No. But to hear some Christians talk, because ecology is a this-world issue, and it has been hijacked by a left-wing political movement, therefore, we as Christians should not even bother with it. Who cares about the ecology if you uh, are concerned with the environment, you sound like a, a lefty. So um, who cares anyway? We're all going to be raptured and the world's going to go to hell in a handbasket. And the sooner the better. We've just got to run around and get people uh, saved and ready for the rapture. And that kind of thinking is helping to contribute to an in increasing disintegration of witness on the earth. If you are really concerned about getting people saved, I want to tell you something. You're not going to be effective in doing it if all you present to them is an otherworldly view that they can't relate to. You know, where are you going to go when you die? Well, 
that that's a valid question but i'm not sure it's it's the most effective way to win people to christ <clears throat> i've talked to people who've said to me you know uh the question about where I'm going to go when I die might become more relevant to me sooner than I mean for it to because I, I can't keep body and soul together. I can't, I've lost my job. I've, uh, I have no income. I have no support. I have no place to turn. And while I'm all for uh, helping people uh, get off the dole and care for themselves and learn to make a living, uh that's an easy out for many people on the so-called right. By an easy out for those on the right, uh, what I'm referring to is it's very easy to say, well, let them go get a job and take care of themselves. Uh, that way, we don't have to find out why they don't have a job. We don't have to find out what damage may be done in their lives that keep them from being able to keep a job. We don't have to get our hands dirty in the realities that are keeping them in in the case they're in, in the situation they're in. Uh, we can comfort our, our conscience by convincing ourselves that they are where they are by their own choice. We not only do this locally, but it's even easier to do internationally. Uh, we can be deeply concerned for the people of the Sudan and then decide that it's their own fault because they've been in a... a uh, uh, before they were in a political mess, they were in a tribal mess. And then the tribal mess turned into a political mess, and there's nothing you can do about it, and uh, we changed the channel. Now, don't misunderstand me. I changed the channel when I see those horrible pictures because I can't bear the pictures, and I can't fix the world. And I am not capable of looking at those images and, and just feeling horrible about it, about it to the point that I can't function. That's not helping them, and it's certainly not helping me. But what I can do is get before the Lord and find out what my responsibility is and do what I can do to touch the part of the world that I can touch. Uh, that we, we are involved with several ministries, uh, that do that all the time. Uh, we support uh, through this ministry, five ministries. We don't do it as nearly as regularly as I wish we could. But every uh, month, we are giving at least uh, a portion of our income to ministries that are getting to the poor and getting to the indigent and getting to the war-torn parts of the world uh, and uh, digging wells where there's no water, uh, establishing uh order and uh, education and care and daily uh, needs for people whose daily lives are uh, just a struggle to keep body and soul together. So, see, this demonic division that came in the church, uh, you know, I, I may be wrong, but I, th I think the devil sat around uh, and uh, uh, patted himself on the back by about 1920, celebrating the fact that his ploy worked. Uh, the church thought that we were defending the truth of the gospel by standing against the liberalization of the church. Uh, and so we withdrew into our little enclaves, began to sing about going to heaven, uh, pulled our involvement out of out of the arts, out of politics, out of economic issues, out of care for the poor, out of all the manifest manifestations of earthly life. We we withdrew, went to our church buildings, and, and uh, started singing about gathering at the river and going to heaven. And as a result, everything else went to hell in a handbasket. But now. We come out of our little enclaves and, and, and we're angry that Hollywood has no salt in it, hardly at all. Thank God there is now more and more people in Hollywood are uh, beginning to be touched by the real gospel. And we're beginning to see evidences of it on the screen. Uh, that's just one example. But we almost waited too late. Uh, and, and then we came out and, and we're angry because uh, the world is rotten. 
and then we start wanting to politically change it. Tell Washington to tell Hollywood to stop doing so and so and so and so. Now that's where the separation of church and state has validity. When the church is trying to tell Washington to tell somebody else to do what the church wants them to do, that is dead wrong. But the wrong kind of separation of church and state is the, the kind that we had preached to us from our pulpits ten decades ago or five decades ago. That uh, you don't need to be involved in politics. You don't need to be involved in the world. You don't need to be involved in these worldly activities. Uh, a, a, a nice, quiet, private religion that uh, keeps its mind on heaven and doesn't do anything to get itself in trouble on the earth and lives a quiet, peaceable life in all godliness. That's a complete misuse of that verse uh, where Paul says that, that you know, I would that men everywhere pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath or doubting, uh, so so that the church can live a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness, so the gospel won't be hindered. Paul's not talking there about living some some uh, hide out in the cave kind of Christianity that doesn't confront the evil of its day. You got to remember when Paul's talking about living a quiet, godly life, he's not talking about uh, non involvement. He's talking about your character and the way you, you um, carry on your own personal, private life. But when Paul was preaching the gospel, you couldn't be a Christian without making a political statement. Do you understand that? Why was the church persecuted? Because they made a political statement. What was their political statement? Jesus is Lord. Why is that a political statement? Because that was a proper stating of what the Roman Empire had always been misstating when they said Caesar is Lord. So throughout the Roman Empire, when you came to pay your taxes, you paid your taxes and then you take a little incense and you drop it in the, the fire. And as the incense goes up before the image of the emperor, you say, Caesar is Lord. Well, Christians being good good Christians and being obedient to their government and paying their taxes would go in and they would take the incense and they would pay their taxes and they would drop the incense. And then they would say, Jesus is Lord. Now, they would have loved to hear some of these local uh pastors that I encounter sometimes telling their people don't get involved and you know just let let the world go on to hell we just you just preach the gospel and wait for the rapture and don't get involved in all this stuff they would have loved to have heard that well so we don't have to say Jesus is Lord anymore we don't have to confront Caesar we don't have to have conflict politically by being Christians well, good, we'll just live a nice, quiet, peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. Well, how are you going to live in godliness and honesty and, and quiet if you're not going to confess Jesus as Lord when you're confronted with Caesar claiming to be Lord? Now, I know we can't do everything. Some of you who hear this, it's all you can do to get up in the morning and go to work and do what you have to do and pay your bills and take care of your children and try to keep your own sanity. I understand that. But let me tell you something. Everybody knows somebody who needs help. And if every one of us is involved on that level with just one person here, one person there, find someone near you that is lonely, that is lacking in, in basic needs, that is in some kind of problem, and give yourself to serving them until uh, they are back on their feet. Then they might want to hear what you have to say about Jesus and heaven. But, you know, uh, handing somebody a track on the street when they haven't eaten that day, is an abomination to me. It makes no sense. It's, unless you're the devil, then it makes perfect sense. Anyway, uh, there is there is a judicial blindness on America and on Great Britain and on all, probably all of the West. What is judicial blindness? 
Judicial blindness is God withdrawing his revelatory grace from a people, locking them in to a chosen way of rebelling that they've been choosing while they had light and rejected that light. Did you get that? Uh, Pharaoh is the first one that comes to my mind when we talk about judicial blindness. Pharaoh had the revelation of God right in his face, irrefutable, unavoidable. Here's Moses speaking the word of the Lord to him. He rejects it. Moses comes back. He rejects it. Moses comes back. He rejects it. So the Bible says God began to harden Pharaoh's heart. What does that mean? The Hebrew word there for harden is the same word as strengthen. God began to strengthen him in his error. God says, okay, you've chosen this over and over and over. I'm going to lock you into your choice now so that your choice that you have willfully chosen by rejecting my light becomes your destiny, and I will help you fulfill your destiny. C.S. Lewis said, if we will not be God's children, we will be his tools. And so God locks him into his chosen rebellion so that he cannot choose differently now as a judgment on him. Judicial blindness is when God God withdraws our ability to see truth and locks us into believing a lie. The ultimate manifestation of it is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Where God says, I will, because they did not love the truth, but loved lies, I will lock them into loving the lie by sending them strong delusion that they might believe the lie and end up damned. Now, judicial blindness is terrifying. Uh, to people who are not judicially blind, judicial blindness is a terrifying thought. To people who are in judicial blindness, they're not terrified by it because they're blind to it. <laughs> this is different from Second Corinthians 4, 4, where it says, If our gospel be hid, it's hid to them that are lost, whom the God of this world has blinded. Uh, the God of this world has blinded the whole world. And uh, the light of the gospel shines to them and they respond to it. Judicial blindness doesn't come from the devil's attempt to interfere with the gospel. Judicial blindness doesn't come from the devil. It comes from God. It's when God says, I have spoken and spoken and spoken, and you have disregarded and disregarded and disregarded. Now, be it unto you according to your word. Have it your way. Thy will be done. I'm going to help you reach your goal of self-destruction. Now, there is an ultimate nature to this judgment that I don't believe we have reached yet. Maybe I'm wrong. But I do believe that God gives judicial blindness to a culture as its final destruction and judgment, but I don't think that's where we are. There is, there is a judicial blindness that God gives in the uh, hope that there might be a an awakening. In other words, God God covers up revelation. Uh, he he withdraws revelation in order that its impartation again might bring redemption. There's a, a uh, an example of this in uh, Isaiah chapter twenty. I think it's chapter twenty two, uh, where God has warned through the prophet Isaiah. He has warned the people of Judah over and over, and now their impending doom is at the gate. And uh, Isaiah says to them, uh, there's no hope now. You know, you they, they were so blind that they would actually go up on the rooftops and have drunken orgies. And the entertainment at their party was to watch the approaching Assyrian army. I mean, the, the army is approaching them, and they're up on the rooftop having a party, saying, eat, drink, and be merry, tomorrow we die. And uh, uh, in Jeremiah chapter 44, you have uh, Jeremiah going to the people uh, in Egypt who have escaped Jerusalem. 
and they've gone off into Egypt to uh, live in what they think is going to be a safer area. But they've taken their idols with them. They've taken their perversions with them. They're still practicing those perversions, and God sends Jeremiah to them as if moving from Jerusalem means they can escape God. Uh, and uh, and he, he tells them, you know, the judgment is on you here even more than it was in Jerusalem. You're not going to escape. And their response to him is, Look, while while we were uh, serving false gods and, and sacrificing to false gods, we were safe. Uh, it's only it's only been uh, since we stopped doing it that that all this bad came on us. They are absolutely blind, and their right is wrong, and wrong is right, up is down, and down is up. They can't any longer see truth. This is this is what Romans chapter one is talking about. Uh, where God gave them over, God gave them up because they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. Uh, God gave them over, gave them up. Paul uses that phrase three times in Romans 1. Uh, It is a picture of rejected revelation that causes God finally to say, "Thy, thy will be done. I'll let you see things the way you want to see them. And, uh, so, we have school shootings, and immediately, there'll be a, within 12 hours, there'll be some commentator on television explaining how this is uh, caused by guns. Uh, it's not caused by people. It's not caused by children being taught that they came from animals and have no transcendent uh, reality in them. Uh, it's not caused by violence uh, on television or violence in the movies or violence in the home. It's caused by guns. Everything's caused by guns. So we've got to take up everybody's guns. So nobody has guns but criminals. That's that's logical, isn't it? Uh, to demonstrate how irrational that is, uh, just a few days ago in Boston, Massachusetts, Four policemen uh, were called into a terrible, terrible tragedy. I will not tell you the details of the tragedy because it was so horrible that all four policemen who were engaged in the confrontation of this event are under psychiatric care and uh, say that they don't think they can carry on any longer as policemen. It, it had to do with the, the, uh, a child killing his siblings uh, with a knife, kitchen knife. Uh, I guess that means all we need to take up all the knives in the world. Can't have knives because knives cause killing. So um, judicial blindness. But I didn't finish saying what I was going to say from from uh, Isaiah twenty-two. There is a, a statement there that implies that God did, in His great mercy, grant a final revelation of their condition in the hopes that in the closing moments of their life they would repent. And uh, that was not God's best. God's, God's desire for their repentance was that they would repent and live in the land and fulfill their destiny. Uh, but they didn't do that. And uh, God still granted a, a certain degree of revelation in the hopes that they would be salvaged on the spirit, you know, in the spirit, they wouldn't be completely damned. But the that's a, that's that's a poor, poor replacement for what God intends repentance to do. Now, uh, how do we respond to the demands of our generation? How do we respond to? the fact that we, we see judicial blindness on our culture. Well, the first thing we do is, instead of having tea parties where we're trying to bring political change, why aren't we gathering in, in, uh, in repentance? Why aren't we gathering our people? Of, see, i got a long list here. I've taken all kind of notes of things I wanted to talk about today, and none of them, none of them seem relevant now. Because none of it means a thing without 
first rightly relating to God. This is where the social gospel is truly insipid. If all you're going to do is give food to people without bringing them to know the Lord, then all you've done is comfort them in their flesh so they can uh, die comfortably and then go to hell. Uh, that's that's it's understandable that we would resist that kind of false concept of the gospel. But see, God didn't think in terms of okay, now feed their body so you can save their soul, as if you know we got this separation between body and soul. It's gnostic, this false idea that what we do for the body is physical and what we do for the spirit is spiritual, and they're two separate things. We don't feed them so we can preach to them. We feed them because they're hungry and we preach to them because they need to know the Lord. And that's all part of the whole. It's not two separate things. Does that make sense? But it is meaningless to try to do anything politically without first going to God. I'm not saying don't do anything politically. And I'm not saying go do anything politically. I'm saying the first thing we must do, which becomes the engine that drives everything else we do is we are we make sure we're rightly related to God. And that's where repentance comes in. A, a, a prophetic woman here in our area who I have a great deal of respect for, uh, she's got a proven ministry, told me yesterday, she said, you know, I go to these pastors that I've been sent to warn, and they tell me, well, what do you want? What do you want us to do? How how do you want us to do this? Because she's gone to them and told them, the Lord has sent me to tell you, warn the people, re- tell the people to repent. And they're asking her to explain to them what repentance is. And I said to her something she already knows without my telling her. I said, you know, when you people have to ask what repentance is, it's a guarantee they they're not repentant. You don't have to ask what repentance is if you're repenting. Now, two years ago, in fact, two years ago this very month, we had a, we called a solemn assembly here in Hickory. Many of you came. One precious man came all the way from California. And uh, I had such respect for him making such a pilgrimage. But I want to tell you that I'm, I'm embarrassed and ashamed to say that though God will honor his pilgrimage, he didn't get anything uh, that such a long journey could have right, rightly expected to get. I was disappointed in the overall gathering. It's my fault in, in many ways. But when, when, when we gathered, nobody knew how to pray. There was no knowledge of how to have a corporate prayer meeting. And uh, uh, I found myself, therefore, falling into the very trap I'm so quick to criticize others for, of just doing a song and dance and keeping everybody entertained and filling up the uh, hour uh, with uh, things that were important. I'm not saying they weren't important. And I'm not saying this in disrespect to the people that helped me put it on. I'm not blaming anybody but myself in this aspect of it. But I, if I had to, if I had it to do over again, uh, would 200 people gather from various parts of the country to come to what we were calling a solemn assembly? I would uh, close the doors, stand up and read Joel chapter two, rend your heart, not your garments, uh, call on the Lord. Perhaps he might send a blessing instead of the coming judgment. And I would say, now, do it. And I would close my Bible and get down off the platform and shut my mouth and get on the floor with my face on the floor and my hands over my head and ask God to have mercy on me and ask the Holy Spirit to show me how to pray. Uh, Nobody knows how to pray. Uh, People who come together don't know how to pray because they don't pray privately. People who pray privately can come together corporately and they carry on corporately the same way they do privately. So I'm saying right now, with all that I've been saying about the tea parties and all I've been saying about caring for the poor and all that I've been saying about all the other stuff I've been talking about, the bottom line is this. Wherever you are, 
What do we need to do next? What is what is the agenda right now? I believe, and you have to judge this for yourselves, but I believe the agenda right now is to uh, gather with other believers. I don't care if it's just somebody just down the street that you've been talking to. Uh, everybody knows somebody. I mean, I don't, I don't think any of you just live in such isolation that you don't know one other person that you can talk to about these things. If you don't have a church that's doing it, if you don't have a prayer group that's doing it, you gather with two or three, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had to do in Babylon, where they were certainly the minority. But gather together, and in your living room, spend an evening asking the Holy Spirit to show you everything that needs to be interceded for and begin with your own repentance. Ask the Holy Spirit to show. See, repentance doesn't mean hating yourself. It doesn't mean beating yourself up. It doesn't mean rejecting yourself. It means to let the Holy Spirit shine his light. It's the opposite of judicial blindness. Repentance, judicial judicial blindness is, is a judgment from God. Repentance is a gift from God. And it's the very opposite of judicial blindness. And and God grants the spirit of repentance to all those who fear him and seek him. And the best way to seek him is with your body cooperating with your spirit. Sometimes people will say, oh, it doesn't matter what posture you're in. When you pray, you can pray anywhere. And that's true. But listen, folks, there's times when I know the prayer of my mouth is not going to reach God until my body cooperates with my mouth. And I get out of my chair, and I get on my knees, and I ask God uh, for his mercy. I do it every time I start to record this nightlight. I, I tremble at the thought of my jibber-jabber month to month being nothing more than my jibber-jabber. I pray with all my heart that what I'm sharing with you is in line with the heart of God and the mind of God and the purposes of God. And uh, to be honest, I'm so overwhelmed right now with so many things that I feel are important that I really don't know where to begin, and so I uh, I ramble. Uh, I'm, I'm finding more and more. I told Mary yesterday, I don't I don't feel like I can speak publicly hardly anymore. Uh, I, I can write. Writing seems to come easy right now because, for one thing, I'm forced to stay inside the perimeters of whatever it is I'm writing on. But when I try to talk, I've got notes here in front of me to try to keep myself in some kind of coherent, organized line of thought, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm not able to do it. Uh, to be honest, for the last few days, all I've been able to do is cry. Uh and I'm, I probably shouldn't even try to talk about that because I, I won't be able to say it. I, I go to uh, restaurants or I go to some public place where there's families and children and moms and dads and grandparents. and All I can think about is where, the, where are they going to be? What's it going to be for them? Do they know the Lord? Uh, and of course I want to walk up to them and ask them if they know the Lord and sometimes I do, but uh, all I can do right now is just cry. Unless the Holy Spirit grants us the revelation of God, which brings repentance, we cannot talk people into or reason people into repentance. Repentance is a gift, and it comes only by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that only comes by uh, God's presence, and God's presence only comes uh, in response to crying out to him. And we're not crying out to him for his presence. We're crying out to God, uh, if if at all, for uh, political action. But that's a misunderstanding. It's, you know, say, well, Clay, I don't understand what you're saying now. You're saying don't be politically focused, and yet you're saying be politically involved. And now you're saying, no, I guess Sam, I don't want to say any of it. Uh, are, are you seeking God? Are you crying out to God? If you're crying out to God, the evidence of it will be obedience. 
That obedience will translate into action. Action will translate into penetration of the political system. Penetration of the political system has to do with reaching people. Reaching people has to do with caring for the person in front of you. Uh, You see, does that make sense to you? I mean, Jesus was the political figure of his generation, and he never spoke about politics. He only spoke kingdom truth. But if you're speaking kingdom truth and acting in kingdom ways, you're going to bring a clash of kingdoms. Unless you're living off in a little corner somewhere waiting for the rapture. I thank God for the coming of the Lord. I thank God for the hope, the blessed hope of his appearing and our meeting him in the air. But I'll tell you what, I don't want to meet him in the air disobedient. I don't want to meet him in the air having not fulfilled his command to go and make disciples of the nations. Making disciples of the nations doesn't mean passing out tracts to people alone, although I'm fully, thank God for passing out tracts. But making disciples of nations has to do with penetrating the whole fabric of the nation. And that begins with intercession, and intercession begins with repentance. So please take this for what it's worth. It's a hodgepodge. I I can't finish one thought without going into another one. But gather with people. Begin to cry out to God. Don't have tea parties alone. Have repentance gatherings and intercession. Then if God sends you to a political tea party, you'll go with the power of the kingdom on you and not just right-wing political thought. Thanks for listening. God bless you.